Our Father, we're thankful for this opportunity we have to study your word. As the psalmist said, it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Father, we're thankful that you illuminate our thinking by the truth of your word. Father, as we study today, help us to learn to appreciate the manifold grace that you have bestowed upon us as Gentiles who are now joined together with Jews in the body of Christ because of all that Christ did and living in this unique church age where we experience this incredible number of blessings that is the focus of Paul's writing here in Ephesians. And now, Father, we ask that you illuminate our thinking, challenge us in application as we study these things this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. And in this verse, we are going to be studying the Gentile deficits. These are the problems that the Gentiles have early in the chapter. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, he described them as being uh, dead in their trespasses and sins in which they once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. We saw that this idea of being spiritually dead is defined also in Ephesians and in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, that having their understanding darkened, being or because, a causal participle there, because they were alienated from the life of God. And so that term alienated is also one that we will see in verse 12. But here it is used a little differently, alienated from uh, the covenants of promise. In the opening to this next section in Ephesians, we have seen that Ephesians 2, 11 through 13 is the introduction. It sets the stage for this new entity, this new organism called the church. Verse 11 has been the topic of our study in the uh, previous weeks. Therefore, remember that you... And then he introduces this parenthetical thought. Once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, and then he returns to his main line of thought in verse 12, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, as we have looked at the previous verse, we are uh, we have studied through that. Paul wants them to remember something. He says, therefore, remember. And he wants them to focus on what they were in the past. This is not just in the past before they were saved, but it is what they were in this class of people known as the Gentiles that the Gentiles had a different status in God's plan uh, prior to this present church age. And that as Gentiles, 
they were uncircumcised. The Jews looked down on them, not early on in the early period of the age of Israel, but later, after the return from Babylon, uh, during the intertestamental period, that is, the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there arose religious groups and religious parties in uh, in Israel, and they emphasized God's blessing to to the Jews through the covenant of Abraham, and the sign of the covenant was circumcision. And so, therefore, they became arrogant and prideful and conceited. And this was an extremely wrong attitude, and they began to look at circumcision as having a salvific value. That is, that if you were, the blood that was shed in circumcision had a redemptive value to it. And so they were placing uh, their salvation on the basis of works. That is, the works of this particular uh, ritual. And so last time we looked at what the Bible teaches about circumcision. And we saw that it was a physical rite, a physical ritual that was the sign or the symbol uh, of the Abrahamic covenant. And that the purpose for circumcision was uh, to indicate something that uh, was separated unto God, something that was distinct, something that was unique, but that it had a greater significance. It had a a spiritual symbolic significance. And it was emphasized in several passages that it represented a circumcision of the heart. And so we looked at these three verses in Leviticus 26.41, Deuteronomy 10.16, and Deuteronomy 36, because these passages in the midst of the law are talking about the, the real significance of circumcision was the, the, it symbolized uh, the removal of something so that someone would be uh, live a life in obedience to God's word. For example, in Leviticus 24, 26:41, where uh, we read, "And that I also have walked contrary to them." This is God speaking. Leviticus 26 is the context of the fifth cycle of discipline. And so walking contrary to them, them are the disobedient Israelites, and that he would walk contrary to them, that bringing discipline and judgment into the nation, and that he would disperse them in the fifth cycle of discipline, which is the meaning of the next line, and have brought them into the land of their enemies. And then God says, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled, so that means that as disobedient uh, Israelites, they were arrogant. They had rejected God. They had turned to idolatry. And we know now in the fifth cycle of discipline that has come upon Israel that they have not only turned to, uh, they haven't turned to the physical idolatry that you find in the ancient world, but it's a spiritual idolatry, a mental idolatry that many Jews uh, today have rejected God. They are atheists. They are secularists. They are agnostic. They have no interest whatsoever in the things of God or in in the in the Bible, and they just are just look at being Jewish as something that is completely related to just an ethnic 
ethnic heritage. And so they need to humble themselves under the hand of God. And this is what God is saying here. If their uncircumcised hearts are humbled, so it indicates the problem is ultimate problem is really arrogance and a refusal to accept their guilt. So they have to have an uncircumcised heart. This is referred to in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16. I looked a little bit at the context last time where God is telling them to be obedient to him and to love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so the conclusion to that long section of several verses, God says, therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart, using that imagery from physical circumcision to indicate the removal of something. That is the removal of their arrogance and in place being humble to God. Then in um, in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, God talks about how in the future, when he brings them back to the land, he will circumcise their heart and the heart of their their descendants. Now, what I want you to remember here is that circumcision of the heart emphasizes separation unto God and obedience to God. But how it is manifested and the secondary characteristics of it are going to be different in each dispensation. In the church age dispensation, it is also true of believers but it is connected to the baptism by the Holy Spirit. And so we see this. I just touched on this briefly last time as we were uh, running out of time, that in Colossians 2.11, Paul says, In him, that is in Christ, this is related then to a positional reality or our legal position before God, in him you were also circumcised, with the circumcision made without hand. So this indicates that this is something that is past tense. It is true of every believer there in Colossae, and it therefore happened at the time that they were saved. So it was related to all of the different things that God does for us at the time of salvation. But it is further described in the next uh, phrase by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. So that spiritual circumcision, that circumcision of the heart, is something that occurs at the instant of salvation. It is something that is related to the removal of the body of the sins of the flesh. Now that doesn't refer to the removal of the sin nature, but the power of the sin nature, for every believer still struggles with the sin nature day in and day out, and much more so than we admit to ourselves or that we often realize. But so the circumcision made without hands is related to this event that occurs in the removal of the tyranny or the power of the sin nature. Now, there's one passage that clarifies this, and that's in Romans chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, which is clearly talking about baptism. Baptism is a word that does not inherently mean getting wet. Baptism is a word that indicates identification with something for a purpose, and often it was used, uh, it was an act that occurred at the beginning of something. And there are many secular uses of the word baptism. For example, the, the verb was used to indicate the action by which a, a recruit in the Greek army 
at a hoplite after he got out of basic training, he would uh, immerse or dip his sword or spear into uh, a bucket of blood in order to identify it with blood that he was ready to go and fight and to take the life of the enemy. So it, in, it, it is a physical act. In some cases, it involves immersion, but it symbolizes something, and that's what's important. It's identification with something that and it usually occurs at the beginning of something. So in Romans 6.4, Paul says, Therefore, we were buried with him, that is, with Christ, through baptism into death. So if we look at baptism, see the trouble, the reason there's so much confusion over this is that by the time you get into the period of the 14th century to the 16th century, when you had uh, a few English translations of the Bible coming about, you initially had, uh, well, if you go back far enough, you come to Al- Alfred the Great, who transla- who's a great Saxon king of England, and he translated the Psalms and some other portions of the Old Testament from Hebrew into uh, into the English of that day. He was a uh, scholar, he knew Hebrew, and he was a very godly man. He was a believer, and we'll get to meet him when we go to heaven. Later, you had John Wycliffe, who founded a movement of men who were preaching the gospel throughout England. They were known as Lollards, and he was engaged in uh, uh, translating the Bible into the language of the people. And he wa- he died, but he was later declared a heretic, and the Roman Catholic uh, Church had his uh, remains dug up, and he was burned at the stake, or his remains were, uh, because he was a heretic, uh, such superstitious silliness in the Middle Ages. And so, uh, because the early church had shifted from a literal understanding of baptism as immersion into water, to the idea of sprinkling that uh, caused great problems. And also baptism was shifted from uh, believer's baptism at the time of faith in Christ. It changed to uh, uh, infant baptism, and it was connected with citizenship in the state so that if you were baptized, you were a citizen of the state. The state was a Christian state, and so you had all of these other things that got all all messed up with with baptism, so that by the time you get into the uh, 1500s, when people like William Tyndale are translating the Bible, rather than translating it as immersion, which would cause a huge eruption, because at that time you had at the beginning of the at the beginning of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, you had the rise of the Anabaptists, a term that means to be baptized again. And so with the rise of the Anabaptists, they were saying, no, 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 infant baptism is wrong, sprinkling is wrong, this association with the state and citizenship in the state is all wrong, there is a separation of church and state, and baptism must be by immersion, and it must be at the time of one's uh, uh, faith in Christ. So this was a political act, seen as a political act, at the time, and so there was a great hostility to these Anabaptists. And when they started up in uh, in Switzerland, in in the area of Zurich, 
under the teaching ministry of Ulrich Zwingli. Zwingli rejected their ideas and, uh, in fact, had them, they were arrested and they were, uh, executed. So this was, this was a real problem. So to avoid those problems, Tyndale and others transliterated the word from baptizo in the Greek to baptism or baptize in the English. That way he avoided the problem of using a translation of immersion and getting caught up in all of that problem with the Anabaptists. And so to this day, we have this transliterated word, and people are still confused about baptism. But here, the baptism isn't a baptism into water. It is a spiritual baptism, an identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, so that we could translate this to get the sense. Therefore, we were buried with him through spiritual identification with his death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So it's looking at the physical act of baptism where you have immersion, and that the immersion is an identification with death, which pictures the reality of the spiritual baptism, which was an identification with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, being raised to new life. And his point is that if we, at that instant of salvation, when we're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, we are uh, given new life. We are raised to new life. And there are certain realities associated with that new life. Verse 5, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, that's through the Holy Spirit baptism, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man, that refers to all that we were before we were saved. It's not referring to the sin nature. Uh, the sin nature was not crucified with Christ. The old man, all that we were as a spiritually dead person, is crucified with Christ, identified with Christ, that the body of sin, now that's the sin nature, that the body of sin might be done away with. See, if the old man, now many people take the old man as a sin nature, but the problem with that is, let me read it this way, that our old sin nature was crucified with him, that the old sin nature might be done away with. Well, that doesn't make sense, because if the old sin nature was crucified with him, then why does it still need to be done away with? So that's why these are two different terms. The old man refers to all that we were as a spiritually dead unbeliever. We're crucified with him, identified with him in his death, burial, and resurrection so that our sins are paid for and they're no longer the issue for the purpose that in the future, in our spiritual life and spiritual growth, this, the, the, the actions the, of the sin nature would be done away with because what happens is the power, the tyranny, uh, of the sin nature is broken over us so that once saved, we have the option to live unto Christ, to live and follow him and not just simply follow the dictates of our sin nature because a spiritually dead person has only one option, and that's to live according to the dictates of the sin nature. So the spiritually dead person is 
everything they do, no matter how good it is, no matter how kind it is, no matter how wonderful they are, everything comes from their sin nature. But once we are saved, that old man, all that we were, is crucified with Christ. The power of the sin nature is then broken so that we can do away with it as we live unto God through our spiritual growth and spiritual life so that we will no longer enslave ourselves to the sin nature. Now, notice in Romans 6, 4 through 6, this idea that that we do away with this body of sins. We no longer live according to sin, and we're to walk in newness of life. Now, we're going to connect this to Galatians 3, 26 through 29. There, Paul says, now remember, let me give you a little background. In Galatians, the problem is there were a group of people who historically have been called Judaizers. These were like Pharisees. Some of them were probably believers, but they had come, they had forgotten what grace was, and they said you had to obey the law, especially circumcision, in order to either A, be saved, or B, live the spiritual life. So they were introducing this legalistic ritual observance as necessary for both salvation and also the spiritual life. And so Paul addresses the Corinthians because they got, I mean the Galatians because they'd gotten all confused with this. And he says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ. That's all that's necessary. Faith alone in Christ alone. And then he explains it further. He says, for as many of you as were baptized are identified into Christ. You're identified with his death, burial, and resurrection. It's Romans 6, 4 through 6, which we just looked at. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So this is something else that happens at that instant of salvation. We're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and that is called putting on Christ. And then he says, because we're in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Now, the context here is he's talking about those who are, have, have, who are trying to convince them to come back under the Mosaic Law. On the Mosaic Law, uh, you go back to the, uh, what you've learned about the tabernacle and what you've learned about the temple is that only women could go so far into the temple. They could go further than Gentiles. Gentiles had to stop at a certain point, and we'll look into this in, when we get to verse 14 in, in Ephesians chapter 2, because there it talks about the wall of separation. So they have discovered this wall of separation, which in Hebrew was called the Soreg. Gentiles could go that far and no further. Women could go further, and they could go into the court of the, Gentile, of the women, but they couldn't go any further. Only free males could enter into the uh, in, inner courtyard, the court of the men, in the tabernacle and worship God. So there were limitations on slaves, there were limitations on women, there were limitations on Gentiles. And what Paul is saying here is in Christ there's no limitations. We are all in our priesthood. We are all have equal access to God. He is not saying that the, that the physical distinctions have been eradicated. Jews are still Jews. Gentiles are still Gentiles ethnically. 
Slaves are still slaves. That is why Onesiphorus had to be uh, um, had to be freed from from Philemon, and they are still male or female, for all are one in Christ. And then Paul says, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed, not physically, but the seed of Abraham according to the promise. Now, there's our phrase. That's what is going to be significant in our passage in verse 12, is understanding that Gentiles prior to the church age were alienated and separated from the promise of God. Uh, they could be saved, but that promise was given to the Jews, not to the Gentiles. This is our passage. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 which states that at that time, that is, at the time when, before, when they were spiritually distinct from Israel, when they were the uncircumcised, when they were a category of, of person that was not the same as the Gentiles. So, at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, there are some who have taken this in different ways, uh, but grammatically we have to look at this in terms of, of one, th- one thing. So we have to break it down and look at the, Paul's flow of thought here. He starts off in verse 11, which we saw last time, that therefore indicates, therefore in light of what I've just said in Romans, I mean in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 9, 10, and 11, that we have been saved by grace and not by works, and we are a new creation from God's workmanship, a new work of art that includes Jew and Gentile. It's not on the basis of works. Circumcision would be a basis of works. So he says, therefore, in light of this, remember something. What is, what do they have to remember? That's indicated by the word that, that that introduces the content of what they are to remember. You were once Gentiles in the flesh. Now he's not talking about their salvation, that before you were saved you were a Gentile, now you're something else. He's talking about what they were at a particular time which would be before there was a church, before the church existed in, in uh, AD 33 on the day of Pentecost, which is the birth date of the church, when the Holy Spirit descended upon the disciples, and when that's when they were indwelt, baptized by the Holy Spirit, and were beginning to be filled by means of the Holy Spirit. That's when that started. Prior to that, there was believers did not have a sanctifying relationship with God the Holy Spirit. That begins on the day of Pentecost. Before that, they're Gentiles in the flesh, the uncircumcision, a class of people. And so Paul introduces this parenthetical phrase here, uh, who are called uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. So he starts his thought in verse 1, remember that you were once Gentiles in the flesh. He then reminds them what that means, and then in verse 12, he comes back and he says that. See, it's the same 
word that's used up in verse 11. And so it indicates that he's picking up his thought again. He's starting it up again and reminding them of what they were as Gentiles, as this class, prior to the church age. And then he states it in verse 12, uh, that at that time. So we could paraphrase it this way. Remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh, the ellipses there represents the uh, his parenthetical thought, you once Gentiles in the flesh were without Christ, and that continues the thought that we see in in verse 12. At that time you were, and then he lists five things. And here we have a breakdown of those five things. First of all, they were without Christ. Second, they were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Third, they are strangers from the covenants of promise. Fourth, they had no hope. Fifth, they were without God in the world. Now, None of this means that they couldn't be saved. We have many examples in the Old Testament of Gentiles who became saved. Some became proselytes and entered into Judaism, such as Ruth when she married Boaz. And then we have others like Naaman the Syrian who had leprosy and he's healed by Elisha. And he goes back uh, to Syria to serve the king of Syria and he continues as a Gentile without becoming a proselyte. So he is saved. And there were many others in the Old Testament stories that were Gentiles who became saved. Some became proselytes. Uh, Rahab uh, the harlot is one that is mentioned as uh, marrying into uh, marrying a Jew and becoming a proselyte and becoming uh, Jewish, entering into that. So we see that there's salvation for the Gentile, but they're still distinct from the Jews. There are significant differences, and that's what we are we're looking at here. And so Ephesians 2:12 starts off with the phrase, and the wrong words are underlined here. Should be that at that time. You were. At that time is the phrase that should be underlined here. At that time is significant. He is saying that at that time, that that time is identified uh, in the previous verse as that time when they were once Gentiles in the flesh called uncircumcision. So he's, he's not just talking about, well, you Ephesians, before you were saved, He's talking about a time period that was before they were joined to Christ and could be in Christ. So it's really taking us back to the age of the Gentiles. The word there for time is kairos, which refers to a time or a period of time. And we get part of that because the verb, we'll look at the verb in just a minute, you were in the Greek is in the imperfect tense. And the imperfect tense refers to continual action in past time. So it's talking about this class of people called Gentiles who for a period of time, they continue through this period of time uh, to be in, in this position. See, all of these things that are listed 
have to do with the Gentiles being distinct from Israel during the Old Testament. So this takes us to an understanding of the ages of civilization and looking at this particular chart because this is a verse that is going to help us to understand the ages in God's plan as well as dispensations. And so we, here we have eternity past before uh, God creates the heavens and the earth. And then he will create the heavens and the earth Genesis 1-1, and then there's going to be the fall of Satan, and then shortly thereafter, this didn't take eons or anything, it's a very short, very short time period between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, but it is a time when Satan fell, and then God created Adam and Eve. There's no Jews, there's just from Adam and Eve until Genesis 12-1 and the call of Abraham, there are only Gentiles. Gentiles didn't know they were Gentiles. The term Gentile doesn't come into effect until you have Jews, and the Jews called those who weren't Jews uh, Gentiles. So this is the age of the Gentiles. It began with the creation of Adam and Eve and goes until the call of Abram, in Genesis chapter 12, and that begins the age of Israel. The age of Israel will be broken down into two dispensations. We'll see that later. The dispensation of the patriarchs is the usual term I use, but another term that has been used by dispensationalists is it's the dispensation of promise, because that's when you have the promises given in the Abrahamic covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it precedes the giving of the law to Moses, which is the second dispensation, which is the dispensation of the law. And then that this, but that's all part of the age of Israel. Age of Israel ends uh, some put it at the cross, but technically it ends on the day of Pentecost, right after the cross, when the church age begins. And then you have the church age, which extends from A.D. 33, day of Pentecost, until the rapture of the church. And then with the rapture of the church, the Holy Spirit is also removed in Second Thessalonians. He is called the Restrainer. And the restrainer is removed. There will not be any more baptism by the Holy Spirit because it, baptism by the Spirit is baptism into Christ. Okay? Now, there are some dispensationalists who don't take the restrainer as the Holy Spirit. But here's the problem. If, you're, if you are in the tribulation and you can still be baptized by the Spirit, then you're in the church. And you don't have any church-age distinctives going on during the tribulation. And you can demonstrate that by looking at what is said in Second Thessalonians as well as what is said in Revelation chapter 4 through chapter 19. The church is not present during the, during the dispensation of the tribulation. So the church age ends with the rapture. Um, then you have Christ's second coming after the seven-year tribulation and the messianic age and then there's the great white throne judgment, and then we go into eternity future. So these are the four great ages, the age of the Gentiles, 
than the age of Israel when God is going to be working distinctively through the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then you have the church age, which is coterminous with the age or the dispensation of grace. And then you have the messianic age, which is coterminous with the, what we call the millennium. And then we go into eternity, in eternity future. So in Ephesians 2.12, that at that time, that is prior to A.D. 33 in the day of Pentecost and the beginning of the church, you were an imperfect tense, continual action. And all five of these are the objects of that verb. You were without Christ. You were aliens uh, from the alienated, from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. So we look at this first one, which is without Christ. Now, I would guess that if you have read this and just skimmed through this, you're without Christ, you probably thought, well, you weren't a a believer. That would be pretty obvious, but that's not contextually accurate. Okay? It's talking about The situation prior to A.D. 30, it is not talking about their individual salvific situation. It is talking about them as a class of people, the Gentiles, and and all five of these are all talking about uh, the description of Gentiles as a class prior to the church age. Okay, so first of all, they are without Christ. Now, you'll often hear me say that there are, that if you're not a believer today, you're without Christ and without hope and without eternal life. That's not how Paul is using the term here, as I just pointed out. It has the idea of being separated from something or apart from something. They were separated from Christ. And here the idea is not, uh, as I said, salvation. It's it's. Really, we have to understand that Paul's writing in Greek, so he uses the Greek word Christos, which means the anointed one. But Christos is the translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach. It means the anointed one. They did, as a class, Gentiles had no Messiah. They had no promises of a Messiah. They had no idea that a Messiah was coming unless they had some contact with the Jewish people. But as a whole... Uh, they did not have any idea that a Messiah was coming, that God was sending a Messiah. But Israel had a messianic hope. Uh, uh, Paul emphasizes this in other passages, such as in passages in Romans. In fact, there are uh, several passages that talk about the Jewish privileges uh, that were theirs in the age of Israel. First of all, Romans 3, 1 and 2 states that God granted them the privilege of being the custodians of Scripture. See, prior to the call of Abraham, God had worked through the Gentiles. He worked through all of the people. He worked through all of the people from Adam until uh, until Noah. And we all know what happened is by the time of the flood, the great judgment of God on the face of the earth where he flooded the earth, that during that time 
God re- reaches a point of uh, anthropopathically exasperation with the human race and sees how evil they are, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. As Noah survives with his wife and his three sons and their wives, when they get off the ark, you have, you have these eight believers. They give an offering to God. God makes a new covenant with Noah. That is a revision of the previous creation covenant and the Adamic covenant, which we've studied in the God's Plan for the Ages series. And then when he makes this covenant with, with Abraham, he continues to work through all of the people. But what happens? He tells them they are to scatter over the face of the earth, but they don't. They collect in, in cities and in groups such as in uh, Bab, what was called Babel, and they build a tower trying to uh, reach God, and it had uh, profound uh, significance of rebellion against God. They failed to scatter, and so God came, and he saw this rebellion from all, most of the human race, and instead of judging them by a flood again, he scatters them by giving them different languages. And that was the judgment at the Tower of, of, of Babel. But because the Gentiles had rejected him, God works now through one person. He calls one believer out in Genesis chapter 12 to bless him for his faithfulness, and that is Abraham. And in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, he outlines the way he is going to bless and provide for Abraham. And in Genesis 12, 7, it includes the promise of the land. Again, this is part of the promises that will be mentioned in this passage. So as part of that, God is now going to work only through the Jewish people. He is going to uh, send prophets. He is going to reveal himself specifically through Scripture so that all of the Old Testament writings are done by Jews, so they are the custodians of the Scripture. So Romans 3, 1 and 2 says, What advantage then has the Jew? What is the profit of circumcision? It isn't that they're better than everybody else, so they, can't, they shouldn't have become arrogant about it, but they did. And Paul says, Much in every way is the profit of being set apart by God through circumcision, chiefly because to them was committed the oracles of God. So God is going to reveal himself through the Jewish people. Second, Jews were granted privilege of priority in the apostolic age. Because they had been the ones who were the custodians of Scripture, because they were the ones through whom the seed of the woman came, that is, through them the Messiah came, they had a priority in the proclamation of the gospel, so that Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. So wherever Paul went, he would first go to the synagogue, he would go through the Old Testament passages, he would go through the Messianic prophecies, and then eventually he would be kicked out, but a number of Jews would be saved. So that there was a large number of Jewish background believers in the early church. In fact, uh, one demographer who's done extensive study on this uh, suggests that by the end of the second century, 
that is by the turn of the century from 299, 300 to 301, as you finish up the second century, he claims that about 50% of the, of the Christians, of the believers, were ethnic Jews. You think about how many got saved in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and later, and then they and their children and their grandchildren or great-grandchildren were all Christians. So it makes perfect sense. He has a lot of documentation to substantiate his his thesis there, so that's that's quite interesting. And it's not till right after that that you start getting this uh, more of a majority of Gentiles and they turn against the Jews. You have the rise of allegorical interpretation, the rise of Christian anti-Semitism. All of this takes place then uh, into the third century. For the Jew first, also for the Greek. Third thing, Jews had the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the promises, the law, they served God in the tabernacle and temple, and they were a kingdom of priests. This is Romans 9.4, where Paul says, "...who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises." There were no promises given to the Gentiles in any covenant in the Old Testament. The promises were all given to Abraham and his descendants, Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, and then other promises given in the land covenant and the Davidic covenant and the new covenant. So the second thing that is stated in Ephesians 2.12 is that at that time you were without Christ, that is, you had no messianic promise, you had no... Uh, understanding of a coming Messiah. And the second thing is you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. So they're aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Well, I got this slide out of order. So what we were looking at, we had seen three things with Jewish privileges. The fourth thing is they were the Jews were granted to provide the line of humanity of the Messiah, Romans 9, 5. Of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Okay, that's the fourth of those privileges. Now let me back up. The second thing that Paul states is they were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Now this is an important passage to understand because of two key words that are used here. First of all, the word apa. Latriao, which means to be estranged, to be excluded, to be alienated, to be a stranger. That's the same word we saw earlier in Ephesians 4.18 that talks about being alienated from the life of God. But here it is also in the perfect tense, which indicates a past completed action with results that go on. So again, we're seeing that what Paul is talking about here are five things that were characteristic of Gentiles as a class prior to the church age. They were aliens or they were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Now, that term commonwealth is the word politeia, from which we derive our English word politics. They were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Now, there are some people who talk about this as a citizenship or as a manner of life. 
But we get clarification on this, meaning from Ephesians 2.19. Because in Ephesians 2.19, Paul says, But now, therefore, you, that is, you as believers, are no longer strangers and foreigners. You're no longer excluded from the, what? From the, your fellow citizenships, citizens now with the saints and members of the household of God. Now the household of God goes further and is defined in the next, uh, in the next verse as those that are built on the foundation of the prophets and apostles. So he's talking about the church. So in the church it is talking about a group of people who have a commonality. So the word that is used in Ephesians 2.12, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, is talking about those that had this commonality in their descent from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is then going to be significant for understanding the next phrase, strangers from the covenants of promise. But because of time, uh, I will wait and come back and look at the last three as we begin next uh, Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word today, to be reminded of your manifold grace in our lives, that prior to the day of Pentecost, uh, we would have been members of this class of Gentiles that were without Christ, no understanding of a Messiah, a messianic hope, that we were excluded from Israel, we were strangers to the covenants of promise, Uh, we were without hope and without God. And Father, now we have been richly blessed because we are in Christ. We are united together with uh, saved Jews so that we are a new people of God, a unique people of God, members of the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the church. What a great privilege it is to be a member of Christ's body, to be given these privileges, to be given all of these blessings, and yet so often we act as if they're not true. We ignore them or we don't know them. And yet when we read through Ephesians, we are we come face to face with all that you have given us and that we need to learn all of these blessings and then live on the basis of them and exploit them for your honor and glory. Father, we pray that anyone who may be listening uh, to this this message who's never trusted Christ as Savior, that they would understand salvation is not based on a work. It's not based on a ritual. It's not based on doing anything to impress you. It is based simply on trusting Christ because his work on the cross is what was impressive. It's the fact that he paid for sin. And that sin is not the issue anymore because he paid the penalty. And we have eternal salvation by believing in him and him alone. There's nothing else that counts. Belief is it. Believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.